time. So it's interestingly, we're starting a new series for our member renewal process um, called Beyond Toxic Religion. Um, last year, Emily told me this, that the Urban Dictionary added exvangelical, E, lowercase e, capital X, evangelical, um, to, their, uh, to their list of words. Um, and it you know, defines, according to Urban Dictionary, anyone who has left or been ejected from evangelicalism, either for more progressive churches or for no faith community at all. And in this series, what we want to do is, um, actually, we don't want to like just bash evangelicalism. Uh, we want to actually offer tools for navigating the process called deconstruction. Uh, Carol was going through a deconstruction process that she alluded to in her sharing today. And it's, deconstruction is a super important part of life in general, in many spheres. It's an important part of growing up. It's an important part of changing our mind. And it's an essential part of an, any intentional spiritual journey or path or growth. Um, deconstruction is different than destruction. Like, it's really different than destruction. Um, were you one of those kids uh, who, at age three or four or five, was found taking things apart in order to figure them out? Um, that's deconstruction. Taking something apart piece by piece to figure it out. You know, if we want to destroy something, we just smash it. But deconstruction is a normal part of learning how things are put together, and then also how to build things. Um, people often in a religious space feel um, maybe disloyal in the process of deconstruction because their faith was mediated through you know, important relationships, their family, they have a strong sense of loyalty or whatever to. Um, and often the deconstruction process is um, triggered, if you will, by um, very strong emotion like anger or disappointment or confusion. But it's a very healthy and positive process, and that's our assumption in the, in the series. So I want to offer three tools today. The first is a little bit of like just family history of what evangelicalism is. If you've ever done any therapy or you have worked with a sponsor in a recovery group, you know that learning and examining your family history um, and knowing how it affected you is an important um, growth step. And it's amazing the things you don't know about your family until you poke around and ask grandma and your aunts and uncles and your mom and there's things that come out and you realize, oh my, these, these things are very significant. I never heard them and they've obviously had a very big impact on my life. So let's, let's start with um, understanding what we even mean by the term evangelical. I wanted to offer a little graphic for you that describes the Christian landscape. This is the Christian landscape. It's a, it were, it's a quadrant, and it represents four major sectors of Christianity. The L over here stands for liturgical churches. Those are churches that are organize, organized around a very careful um, performance of the liturgy as part of their worship, a Roman Catholic, Episcopal. These are some Lutherans. Are, uh, um, the Eastern Orthodox would be liturgical churches. Over here, we have social justice churches. 
churches. These are churches for whom um, the gospel message as an understanding of uh, social justice is central, that uh, many of the Quaker churches are social justice churches. Many of the African-American church traditions are strong into social ju uh, justice for obvious reasons, or the peace churches. I have a little... I have a little pen, uh, Black Lives Matter. It came from the UCC, the United Churches of Christ, and they're one of the traditions that would be considered a social justice tradition. Over here is R, that stands for the renewalist sector of Christianity. Pentecostals, charismatic, people who are like, emotion is a really important part of worship, and you can actually hear from God, and there are gifts of the Spirit, and the sweaty, active Christians are the renewalist Christians. And then over here is uh, E, that's evangelical or evangelical. Um, where did that word come from, evangelical? Um, the word is actually the English version of a Greek word. Greek was the original language of most of the New Testament. And it means simply proclamation or announcing good news or gospel. Actually, the word evangelical was first used to describe a church in the era of the Protestant Reformation, which began about 500 years ago in Europe. So what we now call the churches that came from John Calvin, Reformed churches, or the churches that came from Martin Luther, Lutheran churches, at first described themselves, and still do today, as evangelical. So evangelical in that sense, the broadest sense, would be like Protestant, not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. In the United States, though, the term took on a more specific meaning, and it's probably the meaning that you associate with the term today, if you're aware of the term. And here's the story of that. That began in the beginning of the 20th century. In the early 20th century, there was a new movement that... Um, came into existence in the United States called fundamentalism. It was named after a series of pamphlets called The Fundamentals. And this movement was a reaction to modern science, especially evolution and the work of Darwin in the 19th century, as well as trends in biblical studies that were perceived by fundamentalists as threatening to their understanding of faith. So it was really a reactionary movement to modern trends. It was a very separatist movement. So fundamentalists had their own churches, they had their own youth uh, things, they had their own versions of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that were named differently, they had their own colleges and Bible schools, and they were not involved in civic life. Most fundamentalists didn't vote in the early years. By the mid-20th century, maybe like uh, 1970s and early 80s, so two-thirds of the way through, um, Oh, no, in the, in the middle of the 20th century, like right after the war, so the late 40s, a group of fundamentalists wanted to be less separatist, and they called themselves evangelical. These are the people who formed Christianity Today, which is kind of the mouthpiece of evangelicalism. They took over, or they started some seminaries, and Billy Graham was their um, like first public spokesperson. Um, so evangelicals would be on a continuum with fundamentalists and might be considered like fundamentalist light. But they'd be very careful to say, I'm an evangelical, not a fundamentalist. But in terms of beliefs, it's more like a continuum. By the 1980s, fundamentalists and evangelicals 
and Roman Catholics rejoined forces for the first time to form the religious right, the moral majority, all that stuff that came around in the early 1980s. And, and the religious right, as we all know now, became a very potent um, political force. I actually met with the, one of the editors of Christianity Today um, in, over the summer, and he was at Christianity Today, the mouthpiece of evangelicalism, I think from the 1970s until retiring um, recently. And I said, how did the evangelicals become so, like, anti-abortion? Because uh, the evangelicals and fundamentalists in the middle of the century were actually not against legal abortion, and he told me the story. He, he said it was a particular fundamentalist writer, Frankie Schaefer, who aligned with some Roman Catholics and started criticizing evangelicals for not being anti-abortion, and that's when Christianity Today, for the first time, um, came out with their policy that was anti-abortion. It was a very much a political move on their part. That's something you would never hear in an evangelical church or a fundamentalist church, they're just sort of the background of the, uh, of the movement. Like many families, evangelicalism doesn't tell its history all the time and tends to see itself as like the true Christians compared to everyone else. So that's a little background to evangelical. The other tricky thing about it is that a lot of African-American churches are conservative in their beliefs but don't use the term evangelical for various reasons. So often when it's used, it's referring to um, white Christianity. Um, another thing that's kind of confusing about it is that there are many non-denominational evangelical churches that realize it's loaded with a lot of bad baggage, and so the churches themselves that are evangelical don't use the term evangelical, and so you won't see it on the website, or it won't even be referenced, but it, it's absolutely, uh, there absolutely are connections there. So, um, that's tool number one, a little bit of a family history of the term. The other thing to mention that I should, I forgot to mention is that evangelicalism of all these different movements is probably the most influential on the American Christian landscape. And evangelicalism is the most diverse or amorphous movement because it's found in all the other movements. It's had a big influence on Roman Catholicism, for example. It's had a big influence in every liturgical denominational church. It's had a big influence across the landscape. So it's a, it's a little bit um, harder to pin down as a result of that. Um, let me offer a second tool. And that's, um, I want to offer like a, an image or a metaphor for the process of deconstruction. Maybe the image you've heard most often when people think about this is, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like there's baby and the bathwater, and the good process of deconstruction is just throwing out the bathwater but keeping the baby. That's a very inadequate metaphor for what the process of deconstruction in the realm of faith is actually like because it's really easy to tell the difference between bathwater and a baby. 
Like, I don't think anyone has ever thrown out a baby with the bathwater. Like, you can take, you know, I've given babies baths, and bathwater gets there. I could go give you very descriptive terms of what happens sometimes in bathwater when you're bathing babies, but you can really tell the difference quite easily. But the process of deconstruction is not, it, that's, that's the challenge. It's not easy to distinguish between like what's healthy and unhealthy, what's authentic, what's inauthentic, what's good, what's bad. And I think uh, maybe a more apt metaphor is like if you've ever had, um, you know, in your pocket the, the, the earbuds that are, um, that are wire earbuds, and they get all tangled up and like, or like a ball of yarn that someone's been playing with and it's just, it's turned into just like a complicated series of knots and you don't know how to untangle it. Sometimes this happens with hoses, sometimes this happens with electrical cords. And what do you do when you've got a tangled up ball of yarn? Well, it's not like there's any one single starting place to untangle it, right? You just kind of look around and you say, oh, it's a little bit loose here, and you, you loosen it up a little more, and you get a little bit of loop of yarn, and then, oh, it kind of like loosens up in another spot, and you're doing it, you know, it's an iterative process over a long period of time, and then eventually you just have a single strand of yarn, and then you get to decide, now, what do I want to knit? Um, that's more like what the de deconstruction process is, I think, in the realm of faith. Um, a third tool. Deconstruction in the realm of faith is a time-honored part of the Jesus tradition. It really is a time-honored part of the Jesus tradition. The first time we meet Jesus speaking in the Gospels is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and Jesus is about 12 years old and he's questioning the elders in the temple and they're asking him questions and he's giving them answers and he's asking other questions. Now it's, it's quite likely that Jesus trained under the group called the, that are called the Pharisees in the New Testament. Um, he, he wouldn't have just like learned what he learned in a vacuum or in uh, homeschooling or on the internet. Um, he would have had some teachers. And judging by what Jesus ended up teaching when it was his turn to become a rabbi at age 30 is that he was probably heavily influenced by some um, rabbis or scribes or teachers who were in the Pharisaic school. Um, he accepted a, a significant number of the basic tenets of that way of thinking, but he obviously differentiated and he rejected other uh, tenets of uh, the Pharisaic way of understanding the, um, the path of Israel. So he went through a process of deconstruction as part of his understanding of what it meant to be faithful to God. Paul, St. Paul, responsible for a third of the New Testament. So that's a pretty significant figure. Went through, I think, a pretty discreet and intense period of deconstruction. We know that Paul um, trained under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And we also know that Gamaliel was a Pharisee who advised caution in responding to the early Jesus followers. He was like, let's not be reactive Let's see where this goes. 
let's see what fruit this produces and just let it, let it unfold and let the fruit emerge and then we'll see how to respond to it. Paul was like a young fogey in that period. He takes a much harder line than his teacher Gamaliel and he becomes a, fir- a fierce persecutor of the early um, Jesus communities who were primarily Jewish. Then uh, Paul has an experience that triggers his process of deconstruction. He has an unveiling, a revelation. He hears a voice inside of him, and it's completely, it turns his world upside down. Now, this is like the first step often that triggers a process of deconstruction is you have a period of like cognitive dissonance. Like what you believed about reality and then what you experience about reality, they just don't fit. And it's very confusing for a period of time and until you adjust your understanding. So Paul's experience um, of cognitive dissonance was so intense that he literally couldn't see for a few days. He was, his brain was just like so confused. And in the letter to the Galatians, which is one of the early writings of the New Testament, maybe the second earliest that we have, he um, references this process that he went through. And it's very, very telling. I want to go through it. He writes, You have heard of my previous uh, life in Judaism, how I violently persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Remember, when he says church of God, he means like assembly, gathering of people. And these were Jewish gatherings of Jesus' followers. I advanced, Paul continues, in Judaism beyond many people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him among or in the Gentiles, I didn't confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before, but I went away at once into Arabia. Then after three years, I did go to Jerusalem. So he had this period in his life, much of it was spent in Arabia and kind of a more remote, less populated place. This is where he was figuring things out, trying to understand what faithfulness to God means in light of his cognitive dissonance experience. It was a time of, I imagine, intense deconstruction. He was untangling the ball of yarn and he was deciding what he was going to then knit with it. Let me just offer an interpretation of that little section I read and see what you think. I see Paul in that text finding his own voice as part of hearing the voice of Jesus in him. I see him finding his own voice as part of hearing the voice of Jesus in him. So, young men in patriarchal systems um, enjoy the thrill of rising through a hierarchy to gain prestige. Okay, I, I was a young man 
in a Christian patriarchal system. And I remember the thrill as a young man of like seeing this like hierarchy. <laughs> this wasn't conscious. I'm reflecting on it later. You know, I never would have thought this. And there was prestige in that system. So if you rose through the hierarchy as a young man, you got a lot of reward. It was like pretty, pretty kind of exciting. And I see Paul in that light. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond others of my age. It was, it was kind of a competition for him. And when you're doing that, it's often about the ascent. <laughs> you know, it's not just about the content. It's about the ascent. It's making your way through this hierarchy and gaining increasing prestige as you do. And sometimes in that process, you defer or you forget to do your own thinking. You forget to do your own wrestling with challenging questions. And you kind of like get along in the system by like going along with the conventional perspectives of the powerful interpretive voices in the system. I kind of picture Paul like that as he's describing it in Galatians 1. But for Paul, I think, hearing the voice of Jesus as he did in his early experience, which was, we know that was an interior experience that happened inside of Paul. Others thought it thundered, didn't hear the voice, but he heard this voice inside, and it gave him a sense that God was in him like all along, but unrecognized by him that God had called him all along, he says, that God was, listen to the phrase, that God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Some translations, some translations say to me, but the preposition there is more clearly in me. He was pleased to reveal his son in me. Let's just pause on this. Paul describes his dissonance-triggering experience not as a, like a violent, jolting rebuke. In some of the popular Christian tellings of, of what is considered Paul's conversion, which I think is the wrong word, um, we've heard about Paul getting knocked off his horse. Have you heard that phrase? In, in all of his tellings, and there's like three or four tellings in the New Testament, he's never on a horse. He doesn't get knocked off his horse. That's like a violent image. But here in Galatians, after, after he's processed this, after he's been through his deconstruction, you know, or part of it, and as he's considering what happens, now in Galatians he actually ex expresses it as almost a gentle experience. God was pleased. Oh, God's emotional disposition was he was happy. <laughs> God was happy to reveal. Apocalypse is the word means uncover. God was pleased to reveal, to uncover his son in me, implying there was something of God already in Paul that was hidden to Paul that was uncovered in this experience. I can just imagine that Paul as a young youth in, in Israel at that time had a longing for the deliverer, a longing for the Messiah, and that longing was an expression of Messiah in Paul already. 
And maybe he covered up the presence with his rivalry, with his ambition, with his wanting to show how zealous he was, more zealous than his peers. But then the Spirit revealed or uncovered his son in him. In a similar way, uh, Paul wasn't sent to proclaim the Messiah to the Gentiles, but in them, already like among them. So Paul understood his work as a process of revelation, which in, his, in, in the Greek it means uncovering. Not an imposition, but an uncovering of something that's already there, perhaps just naming it. Maybe Paul didn't want to engage the leaders of the Jesus movement. He makes a big point in Galatians 1. I didn't go talk to the leaders. I didn't go talk to James. I didn't go talk to Peter. I, no human being gave me this because maybe he didn't want to just treat the leaders in the Jesus movement as another prestige hierarchy that knowing himself, he knew he had a tendency to, it was like an addictive drug for him. So he took three years to get in touch with his own voice along with the voice of God in him. And then he was like safe <laughs> to compare notes with the other Jesus movement leaders in Jerusalem. I can imagine that someone with a different history, a different psychology than Paul might have taken a, a very different approach, but this is what worked for Paul. So what does all this suggest? What if God isn't in rivalry with any of us? What if it's the nature of God being God, that God is not actually in any rivalrous relationship with any single one of us? God is not like primarily standing over us to pressure us in a particular direction. What if the Spirit instead is about uncovering, revealing, uncovering the divine image that's already in us. I mean, this is Israel's story of humanity, that humans are those who carry the divine image within them from the beginning. There's a process, in other words, of trusting yourself that is very much part of the process of trusting God and they, they work together. The process of trusting God is also a process of trusting yourself in this understanding of how God's activity interacts with human beings. I think it was a couple of weeks ago we talked about um, the Jewish understanding at the time of Jesus that had this idea that there was this um, divine presence that was called in the Greek logos or word, a word that means something like reason. And on the other side of that, there was this understanding of the divine presence that was um, regarded as Sophia or lady wisdom in the Proverbs. This is all part of the biblical tradition, um, which is the divine feminine and how Jesus um, identified with this part of the divine presence in a very significant way, saw himself as an expression of the divine feminine, as it were, of Sophia, of Lady Wisdom, who can cite chapter and verse for that, which we did already. 
And this is very much how the early Jesus followers, especially those who were, who were Jew- Jewish and had this in their tradition, saw or interpreted Jesus and, and the spirit of Jesus. Here's the thing. I, I notice um, deconstruction is something that you can kind of go through over a period of time, over a f- number of different issues. But deconstruction is also something that's kind of happening on your spiritual path, like all the time, you know. Like I've been on a path of deconstructing patriarchy in my Christianity probably for decades. And it just continues, it just continues, it just continues. That's the nature of the thing. It's a very important part of our spiritual growth and ongoing process of deconstruction. And in later years, now there was a period of time when, because of a patriarchal understanding of Christianity that I absorbed, the idea of a divine feminine, that would be like, oh my Lord, are you kidding me? I mean, like I would be like, you know, I had all sorts of like emotional, which I had just absorbed from the culture around me. I had just absorbed tacitly without even words being said, although there were many words said also <laughs> about this issue. And so it was, wasn't until a number of years ago that I, like, oh, there is a divine presence that's feminine, and I can interact with that presence, and I began to do that in my, in my praying life. And since then, I've noticed that I find myself calling out to Jesus or the Spirit as Sophia with this divine feminine understanding when I need to untangle emotions or thoughts that I just can't think my way through. You know, you've certainly been in that position. You're facing some situation, you're trying to figure some things out, there's something going on that's affecting you, and you think, and you think, and you think, and you analyze, and you analyze, and you analyze, and it just, there's no way you can get from here to there. You can't ever remember where you started the train of thought once you're at the far end of it, and you're looping around, and many times, and these, by the way, are brilliant thoughts that you're having. (laughs) They're excellent thoughts. You're using logic, you're using reason, you're pulling out data, it's fantastic. You're wonderful. But it just doesn't get you where you wanna go. I find myself in that position from time to time. And when I do, I remember to like call on like Lady Wisdom, the divine feminine as part, because there's something about the way the divine feminine is depicted in sacred scripture that lends itself to that. Like um, dancing with God at creation, delighting in humans, Sometimes we need to sort things out like with a dancing partner, not a set of instructions to follow, and that's where this understanding of God is particularly helpful. Let's just wrap it up. Early in the book of Genesis, it says, at that time people first began to call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Way, way back. People first started to call on the name of the Lord. In spiritual practice, that's called invoking God. Like your kid, you come home from school, and you go, Mom, I'm home. You're invoking your mother. You're calling 
on your mother. You want to see the presence of your mother, and so you call for your mother. It's a spiritual practice. It's invoking the name of God. And very early on in the, in the uh, sacred text, um, there are many different names for the divine, even in the book of Genesis. Some are gendered, some are not, some are masculine, some are feminine. Uh, Moses, when he received the Torah, it's understood that the name for the divine presence was Shekinah, Shekinah, which is a feminine word, a feminine presence that Moses may have experienced as a feminine presence. Sophia, Lady Wisdom, another expression of feminine presence. So I would suggest that if you're in a process of deconstruction, that you try invoking that calling on the name of the Lord using one of those feminine terms, Sophia, Lady Wisdom, Shekinah, if that works for you. Um, in other words, be a little adventuresome in your spiritual life. Screw the patriarchy and call on the divine feminine and you'll be just fine. And you may find that something kind of new enters into your experience that helps you to find your way forward when you couldn't before. Amen.